Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. My voice is a little bit rough today. Um, it's not COVID, but it could be Ebola from the Walmart produce department. So let's go ahead and uh, read the first few verses. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense to anything, that in the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience and affliction and necessities and distresses, and stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watchings and fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, for love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. Let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, God, I pray you be with the uh, services this morning. God, I pray you be with me, that you just give me a clear speech and a clear mind. God, uh, thank you again for the opportunity and just for how you've personally spoken to me in this passage. And I pray that you'd be with the hearts of those who are listening today, that your power be made known, that they'd be uh, willing to surrender to you to whatever you ask of them. In name I pray. Amen. All right, so chapter number six is actually a continuation of the end of chapter number five. Uh, chapter number five Paul kind of ends it with stating that he has been given the ministry of reconciliation. And he is an ambassador of Christ, and he pleads with them to be reconciled to God. And while it is true that we are all part of this ministry of reconciliation, I think Paul's speaking more specifically about his apostleship. And he's arguing for the special responsibility that he had as an apostle in relation to this church at Corinth. Um, for example, we know that Paul was called from his mother's womb to be an example of the patience of God to those that would believe after him. Paul also says that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, he also states in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 10, he, he makes it clear that the scope of the ministry of his responsibility, what God gave him to do, extended to the church at Corinth. And so Paul is taking ownership, of, really, of this area of this church and said, God has given me the responsibility to get this message out to you, this ministry of reconciliation. And so from there, he says, we then, as workers together with him, beseech you. And that's what he's meaning by that. This ministry that I have been given, this responsibility, I, I, I beseech you. And it's like he's kind of presenting the gospel to them again. But what does he beseech them to do? He says that you also or that also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. And this can have a couple different potential meanings to it. And I think understanding who this audience is that he is writing to really helps clear up the meaning of this passage. And I have to say this because sometimes when we are arguing for a certain position within theology or we take a certain belief— Sometimes we'll use certain texts or examples of texts, but then by doing that, we miss the nuances of different possibilities because it's kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. For example, uh, there are some people who don't believe that if, if a Christian falls, or they, rather they do believe if a Christian were to fall into any kind of severe sin, then that person um, was probably never a, a true Christian. 
Now, I don't believe that. I, I do believe Christians can backslide, and I do believe Christians can commit actually some pretty horrible sins and still actually be a, a Christian. Uh, that being said, I do also believe that a Christian has a genuine changed life, and even in that sin, God would still be working in the life of that person to bring him back to himself, whether that be through discipline or however God wants to work. And so Paul isn't saying that, you know, live however you want and feel comfortable with it. And so some people, to argue against it, though, will say, see here, the church at Corinth, they're, they're, they're a church of believers because Paul calls them brethren. And so they make this blanket statement that everyone at Corinth in this church, that they were believers. Well, here's the problem. That's not what Paul says. There's actually categories Paul makes through 1st and 2nd Corinthians where he makes distinguishments between the groups of people who were at the church. Yes, there were those who were brothers. They were sisters in Christ, people who genuinely were believers. Uh, we can see that in some of the genuine repentance that Paul talks about and how he was encouraged by some of them. And so some of them, I think he, had, he was very confident that they were believers. Now there were others that Paul calls them false teachers, straight up unbelievers. And they were part of this body. So not everyone who was at this local church at, in, at Corinth, we wouldn't call them all believers, even though he used the word brethren in the church. It, it's a blanket statement. For example, when he would write these letters to the churches, the letters would be brought and they would be read in front of the congregation. There was a mixed crowd. At the end of 2 Corinthians, we see something that's rather interesting. He, tell, he tells them to examine themselves whether or not they're actually in the faith. There's a third group of people I believe Paul's discussing, reaching out to as well. There's a group of people, well, Paul's not going to make a, a rash claim and say, well, you're not a believer. These people have a profession of faith, but their life doesn't really match up with their profession. And so he doesn't go as far as to say as, you're not a Christian, but he does say, examine yourselves. See whether you are really in the faith or not. And I think that's the position we have to take as well when we're reading this, because I'm not going to tell someone who's living in constant rebellion against God, the fruit they have in their life is rather rotten fruit, that you can go ahead and look at the, the books of First and Second Corinthians and have confidence in your salvation. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't tell them they're not Christians, but he does say to examine yourselves to see whether or not you really are in the faith. So how is it, though, that we can receive the grace of God in vain? Well, primarily, there's a couple different possibilities. I, I lean more towards this one, and that is false sheep. There are some people who just make a profession of faith, but they don't actually possess it. And there were false teachers that were coming into the church, were already at the church, and they were teaching things that were contrary to, well, basic foundational doctrine. And so there was a very real possibility of some people who weren't truly followers of Christ might have been swayed over to these false teachers. It's known as apostasy. 1 John 2.19 is very explicit when it says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And so there's people who will have a, a profession of faith initially. And they might even have fruit for a little while, kind of as Jesus talks about in, the, in parables. But the cares of the world, something comes along and chokes them up. So say, did that person lose their salvation? No, it's the person never had salvation to begin with. 
And so Paul having this ministry of reconciliation, yeah, I believe he's representing the gospel to this group of people at Corinth. But how do they receive, how does someone receive the grace of God in vain? Well, because there is a mixed crowd of people, those who aren't truly believers can still benefit from the grace that believers, one, project themselves, uh, but also receive. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. People can experience the grace of God in many different ways. Other believers who give out the gospel and live out the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, the unbeliever experiences the grace of God through the life of another believer. When you come and you listen to teaching and preaching, you might not actually be a believer, but that is God's favor, that is God's grace being poured out onto your life. So you've received it, but it wasn't necessarily something that you personally accepted. You never made the decision to become a follower of Christ. And honestly, even in the ordinances of baptism and communion. When we talk about communion, it's the time to remember what Jesus Christ did for us, how he died for our sins, and we're told to examine ourselves. An unbeliever could hear that message about Christ dying on the cross to pay for our sins, and that is a grace of God that's being poured into someone's life. Like, hey, this is the opportunity for you to trust Christ. This is what Christ did, but they don't actually believe it. There's no genuine profession, even though they did, in a sense, receive. They did benefit from the grace of God. The same thing in baptism. You've got eyewitness testimony of someone whose life has been changed as they profess that they have died to their old life, that they had died in Christ, that they've been raised again to walk a newness of life through the power of God. That is some, it's another way the grace of God can be poured out in someone's life of someone who's not a believer because they get the opportunity to witness this. But beyond that, we see this in families as well too. Sometimes a spouse will get saved, but the other spouse doesn't. So you've got one partner in the marriage who generally is saved, and their life has been changed by the grace of God. And so what happens? Sometimes the marriage gets better, even though not both people are saved. And so there's someone who's among another believer and among the community who is actually benefiting from the grace of God, even though they aren't truly saved. There's all different kinds of ways that God pours his grace out in someone's life, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are truly believers. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that of wasted opportunities. Um, I don't necessarily lean towards this one, but I understand the argument, and there's good application for it. And that is, well, I do believe that it is the grace of God that produces good works in our lives. I also fully believe in human responsibility. Paul and Pastor Joel talked about this just a couple weeks ago, that we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer for the things done in our body, both good and evil. So what I'm saying is God has given you opportunities and he's given you good gifts. Is it a possibility to waste the grace that God has given you by not taking advantage of the opportunities? Well, absolutely. There's a lot of times I know God's put me in an opportunity within, in a realm of influence where I could have spoken to someone and I didn't. That was a waste of an opportunity. First Corinthians chapter 3 says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And a fire shall try everyone's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. 
If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And so there's a lot of, again, opportunities and things that God has given us. And there will be people who stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And to be honest, they're not going to have a whole lot to present. Why? Because I believe they wasted grace. They were given opportunities to do something to serve the Lord, and they failed to do so. Now, the reason I lean towards the first one is because of verse number two. It actually makes it relatively clear. It says, For he saith, I have heard thee and accepted time, and the day of salvation I have succored thee. Now, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is referencing Isaiah chapter 49. I'm going to read verses uh, 4 through 8. Uh, very beautiful picture. It says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work is with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. And my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mightest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him who man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in the day of, in the day of salvation I have helped thee. And so the broader context of what's being said in Isaiah 49, he's talking about a servant that's to come. Israel God's people, well, they weren't being very faithful, but yet there was a remnant. And it talks about a servant that God was going to rise up. And the servant finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. But not just for Israel. It also talks about how the servant will be a light unto the Gentiles. In fact, this is even quoted in the book of Acts. And that there was a time that was coming where there would be a promised one who would be restoring all things and bringing people to himself, both Jews and Gentiles. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so Paul is quoting this verse back to them. And he's saying, hey, this time is now. This Messiah has come. This opportunity to be saved is right now. And so he's talking to a mixed group, those who are false teachers and those who he's not very confident whether or not they're saved. And he says, behold, now is the accepted time. Examine yourselves. If you're not saved, today is the day of salvation. And keep in mind, this was given to a group of churched people. Paul, given the ministry of reconciliation, he's making, a, he's making another round back to this church, and he realizes that there are some people who have made a profession of faith, but the fruit of that profession isn't actually being actualized in their life. It doesn't match with what they say, and he's saying, behold, this is the accepted time. And perhaps you're here today, and you've made a profession of faith, and you said, well, I, I, when I was younger, or maybe not younger, but you said, I, I, I've said a prayer. I made a profession. Maybe I've even been baptized, and I've been a member of the church, but you don't really have any kind of desire for spiritual things. The fruit of your life, it really, it's been rotten. It's not been something that would be very, you might say, conducive, or something that's what you'd expect to see of someone who's a child of God. And as I said before, I, I'm not going to be like some and say, you know what, you can live however you want to and have full confidence in your salvation. I do not believe you can lose your salvation, but I would never tell someone who's living in open rebellion and consistent rebellion against God that, you know what, you're fine. You said a prayer. You're good. That's not what Paul said. He told them, examine yourselves. 
to see whether you're in the faith. So maybe you're here today and you made that profession, but let's just be honest, your life, there never really was a change. Paul's saying, today's the day of salvation. Make that decision. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I have to ask, are you wasting any opportunities? Because, well, I don't necessarily think that the, the grace that was uh, being received in vain was talking about opportunities. There is something very unique, though, to what Paul was saying. He was given a special ministry opportunity by God. His calling was unique. Who he was was unique, and the scope of his ministry extended to the Corinthians. And I think sometimes as Christians, we only think of the mission field as something that is far off. We only think of evangelism as perhaps standing in a street corner calling out to people to repent and trust Christ as their Savior. But can I tell you, God has put you uniquely, you uniquely, in specific scenarios and in a specific realm of influence of people you work with, friends that you have, the neighborhood that you live in, are you taking the opportunity to give them the gospel? You've been uniquely gifted and positioned to do things that no one else can do. That's why God has you there. I'm not one who believes in just random chance and random fate. I do believe that God works in the affairs of men. And you can say like the Apostle Paul when you're working in the Spirit, when you go up to talk to someone, that I don't believe that I'm here by accident and I have a message for you. A message of reconciliation. Are you getting the gospel out? But then he also talks about how he was above reproach. He says, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. And then he's going to talk about a, a few different areas in his life and how his, what he did, how he suffered, his godly character, and what his motivations were, how those were really something that you could look at as tokens of authenticity for his ministry. That he was a real person. And this isn't the first time that we see that. Paul frequently points to his life and the things that he has gone through to show the difference between him and false teachers. And the first one he talks about is suffering. I think it's in Galatians 6 where the Judaizers, Paul makes the comment to them. He's like, the only reason you want people in the church to get circumcised and to go back under the law is so you wouldn't suffer the persecution of the cross of Christ. A lot of us have this mentality that when we become Christians, things will get better. And in some sense, they do. You're justified. You're a child of God. You can have a hope that other people do not have. But that being said, what usually happens when we become Christians— it doesn't mean the trials are reduced. A lot of times it means trials increase. Listen to Paul's experience. In much patience and afflictions and necessities and distresses, in stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watchings and fastings. Paul said one way you could see that my ministry was authentic was by how I suffered. And that's not something we really think about a whole lot. That's why I love 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 15 says, But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. This is in context of persecution, suffering. See, we all go through suffering, and I, I'm not going to pretend to always know why God puts us through things, and it might, I, I'm fairly confident that 
one reason a person suffers might be very different from somebody else. But I don't believe in meaningless suffering. I believe everything in this life has a purpose. But I think sometimes we want our life to be like the life of Joseph. I'm willing to be sold into slavery as long as at the end of the story, I'm second in command with, to Pharaoh. That's what we want our suffering to be like. And I've heard people talk like that. Oh, Larry, I just know my life's going to be like Joseph. Things are, things are hard right now, but down the road, you know, God's going to raise me up and everything's going to get better. But what if it doesn't in this lifetime? <coughs> because that's not always what happens. I had a, a family member that was close to me, and this was a hard lesson for me to learn. This person went through a lot of suffering. It started with just one thing, and it's, it seemed like things never got better. In fact, it was like a domino effect. Things kept getting worse and worse and worse in their life. And what really hurt me as, an, as a newer believer, is, here's the thing, is these people were, they were authentic, right? They really loved God and they were faithful. And in my mind, uh, it hurt because I'm like, God, God, why would you allow them to go through this? I didn't get it. And there was even a period of time, like early on in Bible college, where I was a, a little bit bitter at God because the reports kept coming back to me, the phone calls. I'm like, God, this, this isn't what I anticipated what the Christian life should be. And uh, I remember almost getting mad at God at sometimes. And, and I think sometimes it's because too many of us watch these cheesy, and I don't really watch them, Pure Flix movies. It's, it's like the life of Joseph. Let's just be honest. The quality of these movies are horrible. They're not worth watching. But anyway, Pure Flix. If you have watched them, and I've seen a couple, it's like the life of Joseph. You know, things are at an even plane. Things get bad. God does something great. And then all of a sudden, they've got a better job and a bigger house. The person's health gets better. And they're all happy at the end. And, you know, you've got the golden sunset. And it's, and it's all over. Let me ask you, have you gone through suffering, though, that that wasn't what that was like? I think most of us have. And so we need to get that image out of our mind. And what was hard for me to understand was that maybe the suffering wasn't necessarily just for my benefit. Do you understand when you suffer well, you are giving authenticity to God? You are allowing people to see something that is real. And that was the takeaway that, for me, that it, it kind of crushed me a little bit because I had my hopes, and like, for this person, things, maybe it'll get better, but I had to realize, maybe they won't. Maybe that final deliverance will be when they get a new body, when they're no longer in this world. But then to realize that sometimes when I suffer through things, and when you suffer through things, it shows authenticity to who we are and to who Jesus Christ is, so suffer well. Be faithful to Christ. And then you can give a reason. You can give an answer to what that hope is that is within you. And that will give glory. That will give authenticity to your message of who you are in Christ and to his ministry. Sometimes suffering isn't primarily for us. It's for those around us who are watching. He also talks about spiritual character. He says, By pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by a love and feigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. And Paul showed he didn't just suffer for the cause of Christ. He actually had the fruit of Christ, and he had a lifestyle that was really just pouring out of who Jesus was. 
And I'm not one who primarily buys into only lifestyle evangelism, but I don't think it's a bad thing to have. I think it's necessary. We do have to preach the gospel, but our life should also reflect the gospel. It should reflect the change we're telling other people that they could have. And Paul was telling them and pointing to his authenticity. Hey, you've seen how much I've loved you and that it wasn't a hypocritical love. You've seen the sacrifice that I've gone through. You've seen that when I fought my battles, I fought my battles on my knees because he realized they were spiritual battles. His life was different than the lives of many other people. And he's using this to point to the authenticity of who he was. But he also says that he was living in reality. He says, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. It's just this great paradox. And Paul's not being sarcastic. He's looking at his life through the lens of two different worldviews. Those who can only see through the eyes of the flesh, and they only see this world. And those who see through the eyes of the Spirit, and they realize there's a kingdom that's to come. Because I think sometimes for us as Christians, it's very easy to get caught up in the American dream, and we forget that if we live for the things that are here and now, they're worthless. They mean nothing. And so sometimes it's easy to look at someone's life and you think, oh, they're poor. And the world will look at it and they think they've given up so much, but yet they have everything in Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. Authenticity, it usually does bring about suffering. Authenticity in following Jesus Christ usually comes at a cost. Yes, he paid for our sins. And so coming to Christ is free based on the sacrifice that he had performed for us. But yet Jesus also said to count the cost before you make the decision to follow him. Why is that? Because when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you might be shunned by family. You might lose friends. Hey, chances are, if you actually stand for something, you're going to get made fun of at work. That is life. When you stand for something, and you stand for the truths of Jesus Christ and his moral law and who he is, and you live a life that is for his glory, you're going to be ridiculed. People from the outside who don't have a heavenly perspective will look at you and they'll think that you're poor, that you have nothing, that you have no reason for joy. But quite the opposite is true. When you can see through the eyes of eternity, for example, we're so, some people can be so consumed about building a legacy. Like, I want to be remembered. You know what the truth is? We're not going to be. We might be remembered by our kids, maybe our grandkids, but I mean, outside of that, you're going to drive by and one day, some younger people, hopefully down the road, I'm not in a hurry to die, but one day down the road, there'll be a tombstone. It's going to have my name on it. And they're going to be like, oh, it's a pretty tombstone. They're not going to be thinking about the legacy of Larry Hoffel. They're going to be thinking, whatever, and they're going to go by their own. They'll just drive down by it, past it. No thought to it. When you live for things now, that will be your legacy. You will be forgotten. And that's just reality. It's what it is. People don't think about people unless you've been like a world leader or done something really, really terrible or really, really, really good. You're probably not going to remember that long. And that's most of us. But when we live for things of eternity, 
we're living for things that last forever. I can't take anything with me when I die, but I can invest in things and send some investments ahead of me into eternity. And those things matter. And so Paul is showing this paradox between what the world sees but what reality truly is. He also said that he had no hidden agenda. He said, oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open to you. Our heart is enlarged. All he's saying is, like, I've been transparent with you. My heart's been opened. There are people in the church, false teachers, who've been attacking his apostleship, and he's like, look, I've not been hiding anything. I've spoken to you everything that's been on my mind. There's nothing in my heart that I've been hiding in the recesses somewhere where I've been deceitful. But then he says something else, and this is a, a hard reality that I think we all have to learn to accept. He makes a request, and he says, but I kind of wish you guys would love me back. He says, you are not straightened us, but you are straightened in your own bowels. And this is old English. It's not talking about a bowel obstruction. It's referring to this idea of affection. He says, now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be also enlarged. And so what he's saying is like, I have loved you. You've seen the sacrifices that I've made and how I've suffered for you. If you remember going through the series of First and Second Corinthians, Paul wasn't taking a paycheck to minister to them. Everything he was doing, he was doing selfless, like selflessly. He truly loved them. But yet there was false teachers who came in and they were causing divisions between him and Paul. And he's saying, look, he's being blunt about it. A lot of times when you get in an argument with someone, you want to find a compromise where, you know, I know there's been strength. There's been some strains in the relationship here. Some of it's been me and some of it's been you. Paul's not doing that. Paul's saying, like, I have loved you selflessly. I would just like it if you would love me back. There is some strain in the relationship, but it's on your end. You're going to find, as you minister to people, and the more and more you minister to people, that you're going to invest in people, sometimes financially, sometimes with just a lot of time, energy, prayer, discipleship. You're going to invest your life into someone, and you're going to find yourself just like Paul, where sometimes those people aren't going to love you back. Or maybe they're going to start loving you, but then there's going to be voices that come in from the outside, whether that be false teachers or bad friends, and there's going to be a, a sin that strains that relationship. So Paul had a genuine love for them, but that love wasn't always reciprocated. Ministry is frequently like that. You're going to dump your life into people, but don't always expect it to be reciprocated. On the flip side— there is sometimes someone's coming into our life and they're trying to speak into our life. But because of sin and perhaps outside messages, someone's going to talk to you and you know this person's invested in you. You know they love you. You know the time they've spent in you, but they're trying to speak into your life and you don't like what they say. And so instead of listening to them and loving them back, you just write them off. Don't do that either. And it's easy to do. It's easy when our pride gets in the way and someone tries to speak into our life for us to push back and forget about everything this person has done for us. Don't discount the people who've invested in you. If someone honestly loves you and they're trying to speak to you, even if it's a hard truth, listen to it. Hear what they have to say. But this wasn't happening at Corinth. 
Paul suffered, literally suffered in ministry. Selflessly loved them. And he's saying, it's kind of nice if you guys love me back. He also talks about partnership with false teachers. He says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath God hath, or what, and what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? The language used here is actually a, a very literal language, but very appropriate. <clears throat> Paul's saying, what partnership can you have with these false teachers? When you're, at, when you're trying to, a long time ago, if you're trying to pull farm equipment, trying to pull a cart, you'd have a yoke. And you had to have two animals of the same kind for the job to get done. And so for the purposes of ministry to go forward, and for the purposes of their life to advance where they need to be, Paul's saying you can't partner with these people. You can't partner with these false teachers. And then he gives, and, they, and let me, a uh, quick disclaimer. I've said this in the past, and that sometimes I think uh, illustrations and examples are given not necessarily to dive in too much, but because they're reiterating a point. And I think the main point here that Paul's trying to reiterate is, as Christians, it's not good to partner ourselves with false teachers. But he gives a few things that he says. He talks about righteousness and unrighteousness. Those who keep God's moral law are going to be at odds with those who don't. When you became a Christian, the law of God was written in your heart. That's what the new covenant and being born again, it's what it does for you. It makes you do the things you wouldn't do naturally, and that is follow Christ. But when you decide to stand for righteousness and you decide to follow after Christ, the state of the world is naturally a state of lawlessness. Read Psalm 2. It talks about how the kings of the earth and the nations, they rage against God because that is their natural disposition. And so if you're going to take a stand for Christ and you're going to follow Christ, you will find that there's no commonality there. There is going to be conflict. So he talks about righteousness and unrighteousness, not compatible. Talks about light and darkness. Well, what happens when the light is turned on? The darkness disappears and all the creeping things that are found in darkness are now exposed. And we know from other portions of Scripture, the natural man doesn't like the light and doesn't want to come to the light. Well, why is that? Because the deeds he does in darkness will be exposed. But quite the opposite for the person who naturally is walking in the light, they don't have a problem with the light because the works that they do will plainly declare that this is a work of God's grace through their life. Light and darkness aren't compatible. Some of you might have experienced that already. You won't have said anything to offend someone. You're not even talking about their lifestyle, but they know how you live, and it's different than how they live, and they're mad. They're angry, and they'll attack you. Why? Because you're being a light. It also talks about belief and unbelief. Paul's explicitly stating that those who were false teachers were unbelievers. The language isn't ambiguous. On our part, when we became Christians, we started to perceive reality for how it truly was. Christ says that when you know the truth, it will set you free. And so you finally get a, a tiny, a, a seed glimpse of who you are as a person and what your sin really is and what Christ has done for you. And it begins a reorientation process of how we perceive 
what is real. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be but essentially to transform your mind so you can discern what is pleasing to God. So the more we become like Jesus Christ, the more our mind is transformed, the more we actually perceive reality truly for what it actually is. But that is different for someone who is an unbeliever. And I think this is something that we have to keep in mind when we're looking at different philosophies of this world, when we're looking at political systems. Anything that we examine, we have to examine by the word of God because they come from different foundations, completely different foundations. Unbelief and belief don't have common foundations. And so what is built upon them will transform into something that is very different, which is why it concerns me sometimes. And I will see Christians, and yes, I believe true Christians, will be looking at certain things, whether it be philosophy, whether it be even within politics. And they'll be like, well, you know, there's some good and bad. Well, the question is, not just the fruit that you see on the outside, but what are the foundations that it was built upon? Is it one that came from an idea of belief or unbelief? Because if it was built upon unbelief, there's some very strong disagreements. So Paul's saying that what, what fellowship, what, what, what can there be in common between belief and unbelief? But then he also talks about idols in God's temple. And this will uh, close out with this. won't take too much more time as we do the last few verses. I want you to think about the progression of God's presence from the Old Testament to the New. Beautiful picture. So when we were walking in the garden, before the sin of Adam and Eve, they had direct, direct access to God. And they would walk with him in the evenings, but then they sinned and that, that fellowship was broken. And so down the road, God makes covenants and you end up with the Mosaic Covenant, the children of Israel. And they set up a tabernacle. And God is testifying to the people of Israel that his presence is going to be with them in a special way. And it's also testifying to the nations around them of what the God of Israel can do. And so this temple is it's sanctified by blood. It is set apart. It is made holy. And the glory of God came down upon the tabernacle. The same thing happened for the, te the, the temple. And God took this very seriously. For example, early on in the tabernacle, when, when strange fire was brought or bad sacrifices, God would instantly bring judgment. Later on with the temple, God would actually judge the nation partially because of what they were doing in the temple, because this temple was meant to be as a representation as the throne of God. Not that he literally lived there because the temple couldn't contain him, but as, as an image for the outside world and for the nation of God's glory. And God doesn't share his glory with anybody else. It's something he takes very seriously. They disobey. They fell into sin. God judged them. But it's interesting is after that happened, now Jesus came and he tabernacled among men. And then as Jesus was walking and he was tabernacling among men, he tells them as he sees that they're get, his followers getting grieved because he's about to go up to heaven, he says, hey, don't worry about it. I don't want you to grieve. It's actually necessary that I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send a comforter. And you know what happened then? So we went from direct presence, tabernacle, temple, to God incarnate in the flesh, tabernacling among men, to now you being the temple. The Holy Spirit of God living in you. And do you remember how serious God in the Old Testament took his glory and his holiness? What right do we have? What 
possible reason do we have to take an idol and put it in the temple of God? That is the image that God is bringing about. He says, for you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughter, saith the Lord Almighty. You are the temple of God. Now I have to ask you, what idols do you still have in your heart? God does not share his glory with anything else. What things do we allow into our lives that distract from his glory? False teachers, false priorities, living for things that don't matter, a pet sin that, quite honestly, just not addressing. It distracts from God's glory. God takes that seriously. He says, you are the temple of God, and just as Israel was a representation of the nations after it was, this temple was sanctified and set apart by blood and the glory came upon it. You too, as Christians, have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been set apart. You've been holy. The glory of God resides on you. Do you take that seriously? That's what Paul's getting across. That you are the temple of God and that there is no fellowship between light and darkness. Depart from the false messages. Depart from the false teachers. I don't know where you're at today, but maybe you've made a profession of faith. Let's just be honest. Maybe you know deep inside that the possession of the faith, it's not real. Maybe you made a profession of faith, but the fruit of your life has not been the fruit of the Spirit. It's only been the fruit of the flesh. I can't read your heart. And if you were to come and ask me, am I saved? I couldn't tell you yes or no. But I'd have to say what Paul told them to do. Examine yourselves. See whether or not you're in the faith. Are you taking the responsibilities and opportunities that God has given you, just like the Apostle Paul? You also have a ministry of reconciliation. You have a scope of responsibilities in the place that God has put you. Are you taking those responsibilities seriously? Does your suffering authenticate the ministry of God? And then I know it's hard, and I'll say that easily, because none of us like to suffer. But when we do suffer, and we suffer well, and we can actually give a reason for the hope that's in us, that is a signboard to the authenticity of who God is. Because that is supernatural. That is not natural. That is the Spirit of God working in your life, and that's when people are watching. Are you living in reality? What I mean is, are you pursuing things that don't matter? Or is your mind being changed in the sense you can see that the things that truly do matter aren't the things that are here and now? And what are the idols in your life? Do you take it seriously, knowing that you are the temple of God? That you are to be a beacon, a broadcast of the glory of God to the people around you? Let's go ahead and go Lord in prayer.